How you doing this morning, Evan? Oh, pretty good. I've actually been sick for like a week, which totally sucks. Really? And, uh, I know when we talked last week, I mentioned that I was sick. And I was like, yeah, hopefully I'll be better by, you know, this date. We had this thing set up for like a week out. I thought for sure, you know, whatever. I'll be totally better, but I'm not. I don't, I don't know if I've got a sinus infection or what, but so I'm a little. On, did you take any meds? I'm not on any, any antibiotics or anything, but I've been downing like emergency and <laughs> Oh, I've tried like, I don't know, I've been, I did the Alka-Seltzer thing for like four days in a row, I didn't get any better, and then I switched to uh, some other weird like nasal spray stuff my dad had, that didn't work, now I'm on the DayQuil binge, I have DayQuil for like three, and uh, I'm starting to feel better, so I think I think the DayQuil is finally killing it, but. Yeah, I haven't tried DayQuil, I like NyQuil, I'm like, let's 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 fight at night while I'm sleeping. And then I'll then I can be at least somewhat coherent throughout the day. Yeah, yeah. Dayquil doesn't really knock me out. It doesn't kill my energy, which is nice. Um, but and my body's always going to respond to it pretty well. I've got to take. I can't take the pill. I got to take the nasty liquid stuff. But the nasty liquid stuff does its job pretty effectively. I know, but so. in that taste, like whatever it is, it goes away pretty quickly. So it's not too bad. Yeah, that stuff. Chase it with some OJ or something like that. I don't know. Yeah, not for sure. So, and well, how's, your, how's your hand doing? How's your broken thumb? Pretty good. It's actually I went kiting last. Not I didn't cut yesterday. But I kited the day before yesterday and the day before that, and uh, actually kind of hurt the, that first day that I went kiting. Like my whole wrist was sore and awkward feeling. I was like, oh, I don't know if I can keep kiting with it like this. And then I, whatever I went the second day in a row, and it felt like a hundred percent better. It was weird. I mean, it's still in the cast, right? Right, but, right, um, right. But I don't know if I like loosened something up while I was cutting the first day, which is what hurt, and now it feels all better. But um, no, all of a sudden I feel like if I take the cast off right now, I would feel kind of okay with it. All right, so um, let's back up and share this little story just quickly. So how how did you end up breaking your thumb? Well, I was just they had the wave contest, right? The wave classic here in Hatteras, and first heat, like three minutes into it. Uh, it was pretty big and super windy. And it was actually a weird day because it was Hurricane Jose swell or something. Yeah. There's a ton of current running to the north and like windy north wind. So you got the current opposing the wind, which is really unusual for Hatteras. Like, you know, maybe have a day like that once a year. And uh, anyway, they were lucky enough to have the contest on a day like that. And so staying upwind was really easy. It was almost yeah. like a river taking upwind. Like, if you get stuck on the inside and couldn't make it out, all of a sudden you're like 100 yards up the beach. It was crazy. Wow. But anyway, like first heat, um, guy in the heat kind of put his kite down and was getting worked. And so I cruised by him and was like, hey, you want me to drag your kite in for you? I said, yeah, I'd be good. And uh, so I double checked with him. I was like, take your leash off. I said, yeah, I got you know, disconnected. So I just was trying to drag his kite in so he doesn't get smoked by the shore break or whatever. He wasn't even really that far out. And I just grabbed his kite and started pulling it. And he still had his leash connected or he thought he was connected and he didn't disconnect it. I'm not really sure. Anyway, the line kind of locked up and tensioned up, and the kite just got ripped out of my hand just with my forward momentum. And I don't know if my thumb snagged the bridle or got stuck kind of underneath the leading edge when I was grabbing the kite, but whatever it did, it just kind of popped it to the side. And wow. That's amazing that there's, like, that much force in the kite to be able to break your thumb just by relaunching off the water like that. I know. I think it was just bad luck and weird angle as well. It's like even if I knew he was connected to the kite, and I wanted to like drag him in, drag him in, you know, off of holding his kite, which was in the water. Yeah, I would have 
done it for sure. Um, I wasn't expecting him to still be connected to it, but, uh, were you flipping it over? Were you flipping the kite like upside down? Like just, no, the kite, no cause kite, like rolled by the way, was already kind of like laying on its back, like leading yeah. edge up struts in the water. It was like the perfect position, like ride by and grab it by the leading edge. Yeah. So I just cruised by, picked it up, grabbed it. I should be kind of like one kite loop with my kite. So I only had one hand on the bar and just whatever to create some more power. And, uh, and there was a lot of drag because the kite was like still kind of in the water. So just did kind of like one kite loop just to like clear the thing out of the water. That way the wind could hold it up. I could pull it in easily. And basically as soon as it cleared up out of the water, my kite had maximum pull and tension, you know, kind of looping through the wind window. And then right then and there, his one line, I guess, locked up because he was still attached to it and just like kind of ripped out of my hand all of a sudden. Ugh. And um, well, I thought I pu- my thumb punched through the canopy of the kite. Like the sensation was like my thumb kind of popping through the Ugh. material. Yeah. And that's, that's what I thought happened. And then within like three seconds, I was on the beach. I mean, we were seriously close into the shore. I just was trying to keep his kite from getting worked in the shore break. If I could just right. like drag it up, do that. And uh, I just kind of, you know, rode right up on the beach. There was like 10 people standing there, kind of ready to grab his kite or whatever. And uh, I was like, I hurt my thumb. I kind of looked down at it. I'm like, it's not right. Looking, it's all crooked. <laughs> and then like five seconds later, it's kind of when it like hit me. I was like, Oh, this is nasty. And uh, Jay, I don't know if you know Jason. He was standing right there. I was kind of like, I didn't even think about it. Like, I unhooked, handed him my chicken loop. I don't think I even said anything to him. I just like, all of a sudden, his kite was, or my kite was in his hands. And then uh, I like, walked up to the um, where the judges were. I don't think anybody even realized anything had happened because it didn't look like anything weird. And uh, there's one guy that was on the beach that was the like a – some sort of medical or some sort of doctor for the UNC Hurricanes. I guess I don't really watch many sports, but I think it's the hockey team. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. Like, he's like, oh, I think it's dislocated. Did we try to reset it? I was like, yeah, I guess so. Like, whatever. I think you know, if you, you reset it, it's going to feel a lot better immediately. And then maybe I potentially don't have to go to the hospital or whatever. I was like, all right, go for it. And uh, I knew it was going to hurt. And so he, like, pulls on the thing. It hurt like crazy. Nah, it wasn't dislocated. Bones oh man! He's like pulling on the thing. I'm yelling, screaming. Like, all right, we're good. Um, let's just uh, like, I don't think it's dislocated anymore. So I'm gonna grab some ice. Somebody gave me a beer, and uh, my parents were there, like watching the event. Like, mom, just please drive me to the hospital right now. All I wanted to do is just get an X-ray because I've got a friend in Hartford, Connecticut, um, who did surgery on my finger last year or a year and a half ago, which is a whole story in its own actually. But um all I wanted at that point was just to get x rays of my finger. That way I could just text this doctor friend of mine in Connecticut the picture of the X ray and he could tell me right then and there, you know, what I needed to do. Um but I was I was lucky and the whole time driving to the hospital I was like just please let it be broken. Don't let it be the joint. Because after I did my other finger, my ring finger right last year I kind of blew the joint up a little bit. It was such a nightmare to get it fixed and back operational. And it's still pretty screwed up a year and a half later. I was like, please don't let it be the joint. And I uh, saw the x-ray and it was like clearly just kind of snapped in the middle of the bone. So I felt pretty lucky in a way. So. <laughs> and that so was so how long? Morning, yeah, go Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, so then, yeah, so then the next morning made an appointment with the orthopedic here because the orthopedic here wasn't in the hospital. Nobody in the hospital could actually do anything. So I basically slept with it in a splint all night long, crooked. And then uh, the next morning I went in. By that time it was like all black and blue and swollen and really sore because, you know, it's been 
some time has passed. He's like, all right, now we get to reset it. And so we reset it next morning. And that was like the most painful thing imaginable just because I think so much time had lapsed and like the adrenaline wore off and they gave me some painkillers at the hospital that night. I took like one and uh, I didn't take any more. I didn't take one in the morning. So I was like full sensitivity when I went into the orthopedic and he wrenched it back into place. And uh, that, that truly sucked. But anyway, whatever. Got a waterproof cast on it now and Ow. it's only been three weeks or something. So. Okay, so that, yeah, that was that was my question. I was like, okay, so how much time has gone by? And so now you've got a cast on, and you're and you're able to kite with this waterproof cast. That's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, so, so actually, the first day, so whatever. So I went to the orthopedic, got he reset it and casted it that morning. And um, sorry, I'm gonna turn my Skype off real quick. Um, so he recasted it that morning, and I had actually advanced through the heat, believe it or not, from the day before. Somehow, in the first like five minutes, I made it through the heat. <laughs> and I was, I, was, I, was, I was texting back and forth with Matt, who owns Real and runs the event. I was like, I was like, hey, like, you know, let me know. I'll judge for the rest of the event or something. And uh, so I made my appointment, had like a 9 a.m. appointment. Matt's like, well, your next heat is until noon. So it turns out I was out of the hospital, you know, big, basic, you know, fiberglass cast on my wrist, driving back down there. And uh, I was like, you know what? Maybe I'll just do my heat just for the sake of it. You know, I'm like, no way. kind of funny. So I got like a big yellow dishwashing glove at the store, shaved my arm kind of above the cast. That way I could duct tape the dishwashing glove up there, you know, make a nice seal. Um, cut the arm or cut kind of like the arm midway between the elbow and the wrist off one of my wetsuits and then kind of brought the wetsuit over the top of the cast and reduct taped it. So it was a nice seam. That way I wouldn't get blasted up the cast or anything. And uh, actually went out on the road in my next heat. Um, that next morning and whatever I did the heat it was pretty much painful and hard and no fun so I did that heat somehow advanced through that I don't know how <laughs> but, uh, my, I was riding against one of my good friends from high school who doesn't really kite much anymore but uh, I was like you know what I don't want to do I really don't want to go back out it was big and gnarly and the wind was super gusty and I really didn't have any interest in riding so I was like you know what you continue on. I had my fun for the day. I'm going to sit on the sidelines and watch. And, um, so did that. And anyway, so then like a week later, I got off that big, clunky, horrible cast and bought some waterproof cast material that I found online and uh, went back in for my follow-up x-ray, which is supposed to be you know, a week later or whatever, just to make sure it was set and healing correctly, and walked in with a roll of waterproof cast material. Um, I was like, hey, uh, do you mind redoing my cast with this waterproof stuff? And you're super happy to do it. And so now I've got a nice little lightweight cast on that's way better and doesn't stink and isn't nasty. And this thing's actually pretty nice. You go in the water with it and it's dry within like 10 minutes of coming out. It's pretty, pretty impressive. That's so. cool. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's impressive, man. That's impressive. It's impressive that you actually went back and, and competed in that other, in that second heat with your cast on. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't really do a whole lot. I went out and just survived, to be honest. Yeah, but still, the fact that you were interested in even getting back out there is pretty incredible. Yeah, no, I did. I did just for the fun of it. Uh, honestly, I think if there's anybody else that I was competing against, I wouldn't have gone and ridden, but just because it was like a childhood friend who I don't really get to kite with much anymore, and he he learned to kite the same year I did, which was about probably 16 years ago, and I don't think I'd ever been in a heat with him in my entire life. 
So I was like, yeah, it'd be fun just to go out and ride with Brock and whatever. We're just friends. So that's, I think because it was my good childhood friend in the heat is the only reason I really went and rode. If he wasn't in the heat, there's no reason I would have, you know, bothered going out. But it was fun just to go, go kite with a friend. Well, I know you have some other, um, I know you have another childhood friend that you like to kite a lot with. And um, that may be a good segue to just back up a little bit. Because one of the things I definitely want to talk to you about is, uh, is growing up on the Outer Banks and how all that came into play. So it was really, really great to meet your dad um, last winter in Puerto Rico and get yep. a sense for, obviously, he's, he's a wind addict and, and landed in the Outer Banks as, as a result of chasing the wind. So tell us, a, tell us a little bit about, you know, what it was like growing up in the Outer Banks and how you got there and maybe how your family ended up calling that home. Yeah, so I guess my family windsurfed, and I windsurfed as a kid growing up ever since I was like, I, don't know, I think when I was like two years old for my birthday or Christmas or something one year, my dad made me a little mini windsurfer, which was some foam surfboard with a PVC mast in it and a sail that I think his mom had sewn for me and totally a ghetto thing. It didn't, didn't actually work, but I'd like stand there in the yard, you know, like pretend I was windsurfing and stuff. Um, so ever since I was, whatever, he basically walked in, uh, around wind sports, I guess. And uh, we, I was born in Cape May, New Jersey, and you know, that's, where, that's where we lived, and that's where my dad learned to sail. And he worked for the Coast Guard and doing computer software design, and which is what he's still doing now. Um, and uh, so he had to work for the Coast Guard for X amount of years because they paid for his master's degree. I'm not exactly sure of the contract he had worked out with him. But anyway, he had he got transferred, and his choices were you either have to work in Virginia Beach, Virginia, or uh, – Coast Guard base in West Virginia. Why there's Coast Guard base in West Virginia, I'm not really sure. But anyway, there is. And uh, so he chose Virginia Beach. And he had come down to the Outer Banks as a kid to surf. And we had been down here a few times on vacation. And you know, Virginia Beach isn't exactly ideal for us, but it's closer to the Outer Banks and whatever. So moved to Virginia, kept windsurfing. We were there. I was probably in about first grade at the time. And um, we hated living in Virginia, just traffic. <laughs> Thirty and really had no interest in it. Yeah. I, I was really have an opinion, but my parents didn't like it at all. So we lived there for two years. He kind of worked out the rest of his contract with the Coast Guard. His time was up, and he was like, you know what? I don't want to live in Virginia. Um, I need to quit, and I think we're going to move down to the Outer Banks and kind of figure out something, do our own thing. I guess he was a good enough Coast Guard employee that they're like, you know what? We really want to keep you. What can we do to let you know not have you quit? He's like, well – how about I work remotely from our house on the Outer Banks and I'll commute up to Virginia like, you know, one day a week or whatever and check in with the office, but I want to work from home, which wasn't really something the Coast Guard did that much. Um, but anyway, he pulled it off. So we moved down here and um, lived in Kitty Hawk, which is kind of the northern end of the Outer Banks. It's a little bit less commute um, for him up to Virginia. And there's some better schools on the island up here. And then we're only a short drive from, you know, kind of, Hatteras Island, Rodanthe, the main windsurfing type wing area of the island. So, anyway, I spent my entire childhood basically windsurfing down here on the Outer Banks. And uh, we travel. I do little competitions as a kid. Go up and do King of the Cape and some little local contests. And um, I was totally into it and loved it and kind of worked with Starboard a little bit, actually, and Hot okay. Sales. And actually worked with Hot Sales and designing like a kid's rig and um, nice. did some stuff with them. But, uh, yeah, so then when I was in fifth grade, um, 
some of my friends are starting to kite a little bit. Morgan and Brock, Skipper Dean. Brock was the one I was in the heat against the other day with a broken hand. Yeah. Uh, their dad lives in Dominican Republic. So all of a sudden, one summer, they go down to the Dominican Republic to spend the summer with their dad. And they come wow. back and they both kite. And they're kiting really well. Um, Morgan especially was like probably one of the best girls at her time. When she was like 14, maybe 13. No, what am I saying? She was like 11. Um, you know, jumping huge on, you know, old sea kites that were pretty sketchy and ghetto compared to what we have today doing, you know, 20 foot airs, board offs and, you know, multiple spins and all kinds of crazy stuff. She was probably top few in the world, but had no way of really realizing it without a world tour at the time for the sport. Right. Cause it's so uh, early. Yeah. Oh yeah. So, so super early. And uh, anyway, so they come back and, you know, we're at uh, Barton's shop, Hatteras Island sale shop, where I hang out on a daily basis now with Ryder and Barton. Yep. And, love, uh, love that shop. Yep. So I'm sailing kind of back and forth there and Morgan and Brock and are riding around kiting. I'm like, I really want to learn how to kite. So I kind of convinced my parents, like, you know, I, I want to quit windsurfing and learn how to kite instead. And they were like totally against it just because myself and my sister were both windsurfing and like self-sufficient. My mom was sailing, my dad was sailing, of course. And so we could all go out as a family and like have fun. And my dad for the first time ever didn't really have to be like keeping that close of an eye on us or teaching us. We were a family that could do something together. And I wanted to start the whole learning process over. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But anyway, yeah. So I guess I I pressed hard enough. And then um, the next summer, basically my dad and I learned how to type word together. And, uh, in Hatteras, for whatever reason, in Hatteras, yeah, in Hatteras. And for whatever reason, I decided at like 10 years old, I'm going to sell all my windsurfing gear that I've been dedicated to for, I guess, you know, five years of my life, which was pretty significant at that point. And, uh, five kiteboarding stuff. So that's, that's what I did. Wow. And so, and you were a proficient windsurfer at that point, obviously, right? I mean, you were, I mean, you were self-sufficient, yeah. as you said. And yeah, yeah. I mean, I was, I was little, right? I was in, third, fourth, and fifth grade when I was sailing a lot. But it was good enough that I could, you know, I was, whatever, in a harness, planing. I could do, like, planing jives. I could do, like, a body drag. I could do a jump jive and some weird basic tricks, actually. But uh, I was I was totally into it and then totally pulled the trigger and switched. So. And then, but, so so at that point, after you got into kiting, so how did you get connected with Cabrina? How did that whole thing happen? So, yeah, kiting's a small community. Um I, so I always windsurfed and kited and hung out at Barton's all the time at Barton's shop. And, uh, I was in college at the time. I think it was my, this was my junior, junior year of college. I can't remember. No, it was my, no, it was my senior year. My senior year of college, um, Barton called me. He's like, Hey, uh, Cabrina is looking for a sales rep um, on the East coast. Just trying to find names and recommendations or whatever. Do you know of anybody that would be good? As you know, in college at the time, getting my degree in environmental science and economics, and I was still kiting a lot and competing. And I rode for Airrush at the time. Oh wow! And it was a pretty far thought from me to be a sales rep. It was just not my career path, not what I was studying, just not even an idea. So I gave Barton a few names of people that I thought might be good for it, and whatever that was that. And then, like, a week or two later, I was kind of thinking about it. I'm like, you know what? I could do that. It'd be kind of fun. And maybe it'd be a good step between college and the real world. I don't know what I'm going to do after college. <laughs> right. I've got my degree. But, you know, I'm not really – I don't have a job lined up and whatever. And nobody so ever does. Yeah. 
yeah, I guess I wasn't, I was, wasn't really stressed out about it, but um, I totally wasn't considering doing it myself. And so I called Barton back. I was like, hey, what, about, what if I did this? He's like, oh, yeah, I didn't even think about that because, you know, I didn't, I didn't think you were going to be interested in it. I was like, yeah, I didn't really think so either, but, yeah, it could be fun or whatever. So Barton puts me in contact with Todd, who's now my current boss, five and a half years later. And um, I talked to Todd, who's the, he runs the Cabrina sales for all North and South America through the distribution. Right. And spoke to him, kind of got a little interview lined up, went down to Miami, got kind of probably five hours of basic training, which wasn't really much at all. And uh, I, I told him, I was, I was still in school at the time. I was like, you know, I wanted into doing the Cabrina sales rep thing, but that's full disclosure for me. One is you got to understand for the next year, you're going to have to kind of work with me because I'm still in school and I'm not going to be like hundred percent dedicated. I'm going to kind of ease my way into it Two, I'm going to school for environmental science economics. I am not a salesperson. I do not know what I'm doing and I can kiteboard. I love the kite. I can probably talk to people about kiteboarding stuff and sell them, but I am not a salesman and I know nothing about selling. So I definitely walked into it like kind of blind and didn't really have a clue what I was doing just besides going out and hanging out and having fun with people and riding and kind of giving them the scoop on the gear. So well, we got, well, I'm just going to dive in here just quickly and say you're, you're an awesome rep. And I, so I don't know, maybe you were headed that, that direction, but for a guy who kind of went into it, those kind of conditions, I mean, I gotta say, I mean, you're like an awesome guy to work with from, a, from the shop's perspective. And, um, and, and you have this unique sort of setup where I think in, in, as far as we know, I think you're like the only, only professional athlete who's also rapping at the same time, which is a pretty killer little combination. No, thanks. No, I appreciate it. Um, yeah, no, I think that was kind of their whole business idea, to be honest, was so I, I kind of followed in Damien's footsteps. Right. So Damien was like the rep for Florida and kind of panhandle in Texas, and he was whatever, pro kiter, super, he's an amazing guy on tons of different levels. But um, anyway, I think, you know, kiteboarding is such a small sport, it's hard to make a legitimate income out of being a rider. It's pretty impossible, unless you're the top five. Um, and even at that, you're not really doing so well. So it's a pretty short-lived um, career path. Right. But um, maybe the brand saw it, and maybe I didn't see it so much, but I certainly figured it out, where it's like, you know, if you're – kind of riding and doing stuff with the brand in terms of, you know, doing some competing, some product development, some photo shoots, whatever. That's all great. You make a tiny bit of money, but not really anything. And then you do the repping sort of stuff. You can make a little bit more money. And then it kind of ties the two together really well because I can give good input to the brand. At least I think I give good input to the brand in terms of what they need to change and product development because I'm pretty well connected with the market through all the retailers where a lot of riders – yeah, they might only ride the one model kite they use, and they're not as connected with the market itself, just their own personal riding and their group of friends or whatever. Well, um, and honestly, I mean, you got to be pretty, you have to have a pretty well-rounded skill set to be able to do both. And honestly, and I'm not just, I'm just not, I'm not telling you this just because I'm a huge fan of yours, but you do a great job of both. And it, it adds legitimacy to see you as a pro rider, and then we get the opportunity to actually work with you on building our orders and building our business. And and you do you do both jobs, I think, just equally equally well. You know, to do a great job at both. Yeah, and it's and it's fun to see, and it is kind of a cool trend. And I don't know if Cabrina or or even the kiting industry sort of 
sort of plan that strategically or not, but it's, it's great. I mean, it's great for us. It's great for, um, I think it's great for the whole brand experience. And, uh, I, I think it, I think it's, it also, there's a lot of efficiencies in, in, in place. And one of them that you just mentioned, I mean, you, the fact that you're in touch with retailers, I think that does a lot to kind of be able to go back to manufacturers or go back to like the whole product development team and really provide, you know, firsthand feedback on what's going on in the retail world. Yeah. No, I think it's definitely a win-win. Yeah. At least I hope it is. It is for me for sure. Cause it's yeah. fun. I get to play all the time and travel around and, you know, for me, a work trip is going to Cape Cod or Vermont or Charleston, South Carolina, going to the beach and hanging out and going kiting. So yeah, it's a I'm, good gig. I'm, I'm certainly very lucky. That's for sure. And I think people see it because pretty often I'll be at the beach. Maybe I'm somewhere that I don't really want to be. It kind of puts it all in perspective, like in New York or, you know, somewhere where it's just like a lot of people. I'm not a city person. I can't stand being in places like that. So if I'm at the beach and you know, say like Plum Beach, everybody from New York comes out there to go kiting. And people come up to me on the beach and be like, oh, yeah, you've got such a best job. All you could do is travel around, do demos and go kiting with people. And I'm standing there on the beach doing demos thinking, oh, I just want to get out of here. And then I realize I'm like, you know what? This is like, that. that's kind of when I realize like how good I have it. Cause I'm sitting there thinking, I can't wait to get out of here. I just want to be back in Hatteras or be somewhere where it's actually like, good riding. But I'm like, you know what? I'm standing here on the beach at a spot where you can actually kite. I'm surrounded by all these people that are stoked to be here because they're on the water kiting. So I can't complain about it. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm spoiled for sure. <laughs> it's good. It's good to get that perspective once in a while though. Just to remind oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, for sure. I mean, so often, I mean, doing demos at the same time, it, it can be a couple, a long couple of weeks just on the road for multiple weeks going from beach to beach to beach. And you, you, do, you do, I do burn out on it. But, yeah. Um, and then, and also chase, chasing the wind a little bit, right? Like the hardest thing is trying to organize demos for these shops and then, you know, the wind doesn't cooperate and, yeah, that's that's, that's, that's got to be a struggle. Yeah, that's the, that's the frustrating part because usually on the east coast you get a wind pattern that affects the entire east coast, right? So it's like the wind's on for like three or four days in a row, and everybody wants a demo on the weekend, and most likely they want like two demo days. So they want like you know a Friday, and then like Saturday is a backup day or vice versa. So it's like, all right, we've got I've got ten spots I need to hit. Everybody yeah. wants a demo on the same <laughs> two days. It's not gonna happen. And Maybe I can take one weekend and stretch it out, right? Like, all right, I'll do one demo in New Jersey on this day and then do another demo in Cape Cod on that day. So I'll do like Friday, Saturday in New Jersey and then Sunday in Cape Cod. And all of a sudden you're Saturday in New Jersey, you're at the beach till five. Everybody wants to hang out and like, oh, let's go out to dinner and talk some more, blah, 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 blah. And just to leave New Jersey by like seven, then you get crushed by like, you know, New York traffic. Then you got to get up to Cape Cod, which is, oh. I don't know six, seven hours from northern New Jersey to be there at 9 a.m. to do a demo the next morning. And you're just thinking, oh, I'm so over it at this point. <laughs> That's when you're like, hey, I am not living the dream, man. This is actually a grind. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, every once in a while it gets to be rough. And then, and then all of a sudden it's like Monday through Friday. And maybe it's windy, but maybe it's most likely it's not. And all of a sudden you have to kill a whole week waiting for the next weekend or the next batch of wind to come through and do your next kind of little push of demos. So it's like everything hits you at once, super busy driving like 500 miles here, 500 miles there doing demos at the beach. And then all of a sudden you're sitting somewhere going, all right, now what am I going to do for the next five days? I want to drive all the way back to Hatteras, like 12 hours. 
just that's a whole day drive back to there and then drive all the way back up here two days later Porsche to sit here for four days and wait. <laughs> and then sitting somewhere for like four days and waiting because you're like, all right, I'm not going to spend, you know, a whole day driving south, hang out for two days, and drive a whole drive a whole other day north. I might as well just stay right here. So, right. But the and scheduling is definitely tricky, and wind is not that reliable for mm-hmm. scheduling. No, no so we don't. Know. Everybody who who kites or wind surfs, we all know that. But I want to talk to you because every now and then you also get this great perk where you get you go out to Maui and do like a big photo shoot with Cabrina and that whole crew. And so I'm, I'm curious to hear what um so what's what it, what's it like hanging out with with uh, with Pete Cabrina and what's it been like getting to know him? The whole Maui photo shoot super super fun. So I've been lucky enough to do that in the last four years now I think, and they usually do it in March. Um, you know they shoot the next year's product and. The whole Cabrina group is like a really tight family. Like the first year I went out there, I basically met everyone and the group changes a little bit year to year who's out there doing the photo shoot. You know, one rider might be injured or maybe somebody has a different obligation so they get somebody else coming in their place. But um, basically go out there for 10 days and it's a ton of work and a lot of riding and shoot everything. Right. But it's so much fun. Everybody's got a ton of energy. You're up at, you know, seven in the morning surfing or doing something and you're at the office kind of checking in, figuring out the schedule, you probably drive across the island like three times in a day at some point, you know, I'll just go over to Kihei, look at it here. Oh wait, no, no, we need to go here and shoot this. And it's the whole thing's a whirlwind for sure. Yeah. But um, he's, he's an awesome dude, incredibly humble, really talented. And you don't realize how good of a rider he is until you, you know, you see some like old videos of them, you know, surfing jaws or doing whatever. And, you know, maybe you're kiting at them, you're kiting with them at Tokyo or lanes or whatever. And you're like, ah, it's pretty big. You know, it's double overhead and feeling like, all right, I don't want to screw up here. And he's cruising around. And for him, it might as well probably be, you know, knee high. Right. And, uh, no, he's just super talented, comfortable waterman. And you would have no idea by talking to him. He's just very, yeah, it's cool. very quiet and soft spoken and just the quality, quality dude for sure. So, well, yeah. And I, and I can tell it certainly looks like all of you guys get along really well. It's like, it looks like a really tight knit family, you know And I mean? And this year, obviously the photo shoot was really cool. The way you turned that into sort of a Cabrina product movie, right. That it just, it looks, yeah. it looked hilarious. And honestly, you know, there's like, there's this whole angle and, and probably done on purpose. Right. But there's this whole fun sort of, marketing angle for Cabrina where there's there's actually a lot of like humor involved, right? Yeah. So I think actually it wasn't really done on purpose to be honest because so we go always go out there and we have a shot list we have to get, right? Which is basically we need all these still images of all the different product. You know, this board, this kite, and you've got to pair everything properly. We need to pair the spectrum with the radar and the spectrum with the switchblade and this and that. And before you know it, you've got so many combinations of things you need to shoot, both still images of and video of that you're just basically, it doesn't even feel like you're kiting. It's just like you're just trying to get shots. You've got a pile of gear on the beach. You go out and ride for 10 minutes. You check in with the photographer. All right, you get that shot. You got this. Okay, perfect. All right, now go switch to this board. And you basically do the same thing. And you're just running through gear trying to get it all done. And uh, I think they end up with so much footage, right? In, in the past, I've never done a, a uh, photo shoot video. They've done a trailer. 
you know, like a two minute highlight reel of all the new gear. They've never done like an actual lifestyle video of what happens in the photo shoot. And I think this year they just realized we've got so much footage. We've got so much random B-roll clips of people just hanging out and do, doing stupid stuff. We might as well make something of it. And um, I think it was a totally an afterthought. They kind of looked at it and said, you know, we've got, we've got all these video clips. Let's make it into something funny. And it really just kind of captures the true humor of the whole thing. Because while it is a serious photo shoot and things need to get done from a business perspective, every you know day to day it's not taken too seriously and there's no shortage of fun and just you know screwing around especially you get all the different personalities there right you've got yeah nick who's really creative guy in terms of just he sees something that you could do something with and he kind of puts it together and all of a sudden he's chucking off a cliff um and then you've got like lamb insanely talented like freestyle dude who's got no shortage of energy as well and so you bring everybody together and it's it's a scene for sure i mean you've got high energy people who can't stand being bored so you've got you know maybe a few people are out shooting you know product stuff in the water with andres the photographer everybody else is kind of hanging out on the beach and you know they're not just sitting there they're doing stuff and you know, Liam might be flying one of the kites and Nick's hanging on the back of their harness and they're whipping it around. And before you know it, like the only yellow color, you know, the only yellow radar we have is in a tree. This <laughs> kite's like stuck in the tree, whipping around. All kinds of ridiculous stuff goes on. And, and it's yeah. popular though. I mean, it's popular. Like there's definitely a trend of um, like all these, you know, short web video clips. And yeah. uh, that have been really kind of popularized with people doing funny, funny, stupid stuff. You know, it's actually pretty, pretty hilarious, and it comes across really well, and it it builds um, it builds a lot of impressions. And it's, yeah, you know, I mean, I hope, I hope there's a lot of following, and there's like a lot of people who just kind of it 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 seems it has more like going viral potential because it just it it, it humanizes it. Everyone you. You watch you watch athletes kind of like messing around doing funny stuff with their friends, and you can tell that everybody likes each other, and it just comes across as a much more powerful piece that way, because it just yeah. it makes them look like regular people. And here's what we're doing, like on the sidelines when the camera, even though the camera's on us, you know, this is kind of what it looks like when when it's not on us. We're just we're goofing around doing funny stuff. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it's not a it's not a skit. It's not an act. It's right what's what's going on and i hope it comes off well because certainly some of it's not necessarily a good example um dude my yeah. favorite part was the was when you guys were on the giant inflatable and everyone just like kiting around it kiting onto it jumping onto it jumping off of it and the thing the giant inflatable is just kind of going downwind and everyone else is just buzzing around the thing like a big oh monster. yeah it was super fun we did that twice actually and you get the thing in the water We'd like sneak across this golf course. It's pretty funny. There's like people golfing. I'm like, kind of trying to line up between, you know, between their two and interrupt them that much. You're like running across the golf course with a sub squash. Yeah. And uh, it worked, it worked really well. It was, it, it was impressive. It looked um, amazing. Like, I mean, I'm sure there's some magic happening in the editing room, but it looked like you guys had it completely dialed in this like mega raft and everyone is just kiting to it and away from it and onto it and then swapping kites yeah. and. I was oh, like, yeah. man, I gotta, we got to do that. <laughs> we got to try to do that sometime. It looks so much fun. It, it worked good. We uh, we lost it once. We um, pulled into 
basically lower. It's just above Kite Beach. We went down. You can't really stay upwind on the things. We went downwind with it. Right, right. And we we kind of went through. There's like the no-fly zone. Yeah, the at the airport. Yeah. So we were going downwind through the no-fly zone, which means going out and around it. So we took the thing like two miles offshore, out and around the whole no-fly zone. Right. And uh, <clears throat> the thing goes fast. Like we had, I think we had three kites. Um, and if you're just kiting around trying to keep up with it, I mean, you had to, you know, you had to keep up with it. The thing was moving. And, uh, <laughs> it's so cool. We, pulled, we like pulled into a wave that lowers and basically I wasn't on it at the time, but I had six people were on it. Roll the thing. Everybody falls off. You know, we've got like two cameras on there, you know, big cameras, like waterproof houses, the whole thing. You can't really swim with it at any oh, no. sort of speed. You're like everybody falls off the thing. Sub squash, the kite's tied to it, right? We had, it was kind oh, of like God. four cleats in the front of it, and we had roof rack straps actually making an X across the four cleats, and we just put the chicken loop kind of around the center of the X as like the anchor point. Oh, worked good, really yeah. well. Yeah. But uh, anyway, so the kite and sub squatch are connected and cruising away, and everybody, everybody's in the water. And uh, so, yeah, that was a scene trying to get everybody back to it, I think. Oh, my God. Even yeah. flipping that thing over had to be a, a challenge. Yeah, like it fully rolled, then it ended up back up on, it ended right side back up. I think like okay. here, so rode down to it, basically just kind of grabbed the kite and kind of set it on the edge of the wind window and sort of held the thing in place for a few minutes if it could. And then Nick and I, or whoever else had the kite at the time, we were basically just grabbing somebody, dragging them full speed down into it just to get the thing manned again, right? Just to get somebody on it and just trying to get the crew back on it and everybody's all spread out. And, I think my, my GoPro was on the kite that was connected to the thing at the time. And the thing got like, kite got rolled in a wave and like relaunched somehow as the thing got, you know, thrown around and lost my GoPro. And, I mean, everything oh, no. stuff was everywhere. But, uh. That's pretty that talented was, that you guys could actually run a whole rescue mission while you're still like flying kites and dragging people and dragging people carrying water housings and, you know, I mean, oh, yeah, yeah. some of us are just trying to stay up when, and you guys are like actually running like rescue missions while you're kiting out there. It was, uh, yeah, I wouldn't say we were totally under control the whole time though. I mean, <laughs> I, I tangled with it probably five minutes into a downwinder, you know, I like totally wrap kites with the thing. And, uh, cause we're jumping close to it as well. And James Bolding, the photographer, is sitting on there with a, you know, wide angle lens, kind of getting pretty close to it. And so I wrap up with the thing. And, and I think towards the end, yeah, he wrapped up with it and he managed to like tangle up with the kite that was connected to the subsquatch, kept his kite in the air, kept the kite and the subsquatch in the air, kind of brought the one lower, rode up next to it and jumped and he jumped through the lines of the kite. What? That was yeah. And then, uh, he was on a surfboard. So he just like, kind of jumped off a surfboard and landed on the other side and totally untangled everything and came out clean. It was pretty lucky. Yeah. But, uh, well, he's super talented. Yeah, I mean, all, all of you guys are. Yeah, he's like kind of a freak, isn't he? Yeah, he is definitely a freak for sure. He is, yeah, yeah. That, without a doubt. But um, well, well in, I, I, in I, terms I, of other travel stuff, the, the other thing I wanted to touch on was the uh, so like other other perks of your of your lifestyle is this whole Cabrina Quest angle, right? And the so the Cabrina Quest, right, is a boat that's basically going around the world and. Yep. You guys are, and there's, there's, there's guests essentially that are on board and they're experiencing one of the most amazing sort of kite trips of their life. And, yeah, so the and, and, is, and you guys get to go on some of those trips, right? Yeah. So the, the quest is 
Cabrina um, sponsors the boat, and the boat is actually a timeshare. So all the guests are actually shareholders of the boat. And um, the more shares you own, the more people you can bring with you, or the more trips you can do per year, how, however you want to arrange it. But anyway, the boat travels around the world, and the whole principle behind it is Gavin, who owned the boat, set it up as a timeshare originally to essentially fund having a boat for himself and being able to sail around the world. And Sounds smart. He wants to take the boat to places you can't, aren't really accessible without a boat. So the boat will never be in, you know, Barbados or Jamaica or even, even Maui, right? He won't take it to places that you can, if you don't need a boat to be there, there's no reason for the boat to be there. So right. it's always something really remote, which makes it really interesting to visit. <clears throat> I've only been on it three, yeah, three times. And every time I've been on it, it's somewhere just, it's a dream to go to, right? And uh, just a really interesting experience. So as, so Cabrina sponsors the boat for five year chunks of time and they own, in sponsoring it, I think they own shares of the boat. So they use it for some sort of marketing and photo shoots. Um, they supply the boat with gear because it is a kite-wing focused boat. Um, so they've got probably 15 kites on board for the guests to use. And I don't know the details of the deal they have worked out. But for me, thankfully, since Cabrina sponsors it, they need coaches to go on the boat um, now and again, either for clients that request coaching um, or people that are new to kiteboarding or, or whatever it may be. So I'll go out there. And it's, it is more of a work trip from my perspective. It's certainly a lot of time teaching, a lot of time in the water. But you get to see some unbelievable places. Yeah, so where did uh, you get to go? Where were the three stops that you saw? So the first time I went on the boat, I went to the San Blas Islands, which is off Panama. And they're on the East Coast um, in the Caribbean. They're only a few miles offshore, but they're interesting because they're owned and run by the Kuna Indians, and they're very independent from Panama itself, even though they're really close proximity. The Kuna, they speak their own language. They speak a lot of Spanish as well, but they do have their own dialect. Um, you know, they paddle around and dug out canoes with little tiny sails on them. Um, and their main subsistence is coconuts. As basic as that is, they have, there's tons. It's an archipelago of islands. There's probably 350 islands, maybe more. I'm not exactly sure. Tons wow. of little islands. And some of them are as small as maybe... 10 feet by 10 feet, tiny, tiny islands. But on a 10 by 10 island, they might have 20 coconut trees. So you see that when you're out sailing, you can see an island from miles away, even though if it's so small, it's not even more than a little sandbar. Sounds gorgeous. And it's because the you know, trees stick straight up. And so all the islands are owned by different Indians. And some of the larger islands will be inhabited basically just to protect their crop. Um, just by, you know, one or two people. And the families will kind of rotate who stays out on the islands. And they trade coconuts to Colombia for rice. And that's their main export and import. And that's as basic as their, um, you know, as basic as it is. Um, they, have, they have a little bit of tourism out there now where local Panamanians will go out for kind of like a weekend camping trip. And we'll have like a little water taxi that takes them out to some of the near islands. Um, but we took the boat a little bit further out into the archipelago and, you really didn't see many, much of anything. Was, I mean, it's beautiful, pristine reef, you know, very healthy, healthy islands. But, um, and then, so how, so how did the boat end up there? Like who's, who decides where it's going to, I mean, it sounds like a beautiful place. And obviously another one of those spots that you can only access by boat, which I think is a brilliant idea. That's definitely the way to do it. Why, why take a boat if you could, if you could just fly and walk onto the beach and go kiting. 
What, right. Who, who kind of decides, like, who's who's in charge of figuring out where the boat's going to be? So they set the yearly itinerary ahead of time, a year, maybe two years out. Yeah. And they'll stay in one area for, I think it was in the San Blas Islands for three months. And so they did multiple trips in the San Blas Islands because a, a trip with a standard, with one of the share owners or a guest on the boat is about 10 days long. And there's a few days in between trips for provisioning and whatnot. Um, so they're in San Blas Islands for three months. Gavin, who's the owner of the boat and does a lot with the offshore odysseys, the company that owns the boat. Um, he kind of sets up the itinerary. So you, Got it. They kind of dug it around the world. So I think from like San Blas Islands, they went through the Panama Canal and they're down in Chile. And I think they went straight to Chile and they're down in Easter Island area for a little bit. Then from there, they went um, kind of into the South Pacific and stayed in the South Pacific bouncing around for maybe a full year. Um, and they're kind of out off New Zealand and New Caledonia area. And I think in the future, their itinerary kind of takes them a little further north up through the Philippines and Papua New Guinea. And then they might even be going to some islands off Alaska doing a couple of cold weather trips. Wow. Really? And is so Gavin, obviously a kiter, right? Is Gavin, is he, is he hunt, is he searching windy spot, windy destinations, windy spots, or is he, is he doing all kinds of other stuff as well? So, yeah, I think for the boat, it's different areas they, they kind of advertise advertise each, each trip very realistically if you go to their website they'll say all right we're going to be at this island and the pros are you know maybe it's beautiful it's got good surf really good snorkeling um whatever and then it might say cons pain in the ass to get to which nearly every trip says it as a con like getting here is timely it's expensive it's complicated whatever um, maybe it's not that windy. You know, a lot of places they go to really aren't that windy. So some trips might be focused more around surfing, some more around kiting. But I think the reality is a lot of areas on the equator, because the temperature is just a nice, beautiful, warm climate, right. aren't really that. So out all three trips I've been on, the Sambas was actually the windiest spot I was. And I was, you know, I think I rode a 10 one day. Besides that, I was on like a 12 and, you know, 14 most of the time. Oh, wow. Um, okay. Yeah, so those are yeah. big heights. So not real windy, but yeah. Yeah, I think I think the trip's more about kind of it's it's certainly about kiting. It's certainly about the culture and just the beauty of the location. Um, if you don't go snorkeling when you're diving or something while you're on the boat, you're crazy because you're always in just beautiful, pristine area just to see nature. And then um, I think more of it is just about getting away, being somewhere remote, being disconnected, and just living simply for you know 10 days and really just you know you're not going to a restaurant you're you're on the boat i in san Blas islands even though we're in and out of islands i probably only touched foot on two islands we we're on the boat essentially the entire time so i think the main thing anybody gets out of being on the boat is just really breaking free of life as we know it today and kind of just taking a step back and seeing how other people live and realizing that, you know, you don't need that much. All you need is just, you know, surrounded by a few people, enjoy your time and not, not stress about day to day, you know, modern, modern things that everybody gets all worked up about. Sounds and, awesome. Uh, yeah. Sounds, yeah. Like, sounds idyllic. And obviously unplugged, disconnected, no cell phones, just really kind of living as simply as you can on a big, on a huge, gorgeous catamaran. 
Yeah, um, I mean, it's 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 kind of yeah, it kind of bridges that gap, right? It is right. a luxury. In, in a it's it's luxury. I mean, it's a sixty-four foot um, catamaran with you have about ten people on it, and you you do have internet. They've got satellite internet on board. They kind of ask you, you know, if you're going to be on the internet and be on your phone or whatever, do it in your, you know, in your little room. Don't do it in public, just because you want, you know, yeah. it's supposed to be kind of a social it's a cool message. thing. So. I think it's a cool yeah, message. Totally yeah. And uh, yeah. Good, for, good for you guys for encouraging people to sort of unplug and just kind of get back to just being in a, in a remote area and just appreciating where you are. I think yeah, more, that's, more people that's could definitely, definitely benefit from that. Unfortunately, you know, there's a pretty high bar to getting on that boat, but I think that the, the spirit of it is a, is a really novel concept. And yeah, yeah. No, especially, especially this day and age, you know, people yeah. no, you, Russ, you would absolutely love it. You would love me on the boat. <laughs> uh, I think anybody would, that. Evan. I think anybody would. But yes, I would love to do that sometime. That sounds killer. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's really cool. So, yeah, no, yeah. So, San Blas Islands is the first year, and I didn't actually go on it. I think for maybe a full year. Is it two years later? I can't remember. And then I went to Tonga, um, which was interesting for sure. Um, that trip for us was a little bit plagued with issues. Uh, we had to kind of redo the rigging. Right when I arrived there, because they had just sailed it down from the Marshall Islands, and they got pretty beaten up through some storms. So we replaced all the rigging on the boat, which was a ton of work. And um, we had it kind of set up. We, we flew in a rigger from New Zealand to help us no do way. it. And uh, he was arriving on, like, Saturday night, kind of when I got in. Our plan was to kind of do most of it on Sunday. But in Tonga, Sunday is a family day and a non-work day. And the government would not allow us to work on the boat on Sunday, believe it or not. You're not allowed to use power tools. You're not allowed to go swimming. You're basically not allowed to do anything on Sunday in Tonga. It's interesting culture. Yeah, it's like, it's like using your cell phone on the boat in front of everybody else. You know, everyone else is taking the day off. They don't want to see anybody working, you know? Exactly. Yep, you need to be relaxing, enjoying time with your family. But at the same time, the law was a little bit strange because you couldn't – they didn't want you to go swimming, right? Um, and I'm sure it's a cultural thing. So maybe swimming means – working because you're fishing or something right but um right. it was very so we had to kind of take that day off a little bit and then scramble to get it all done on monday and prepared for when everybody else was coming in so but, are um, you are you trying to book trips like are you like how does it work with the cabrina team riders are you interested in doing as many trips as you can obviously or is there i imagine like there's like a, a prioritization in terms of who's doing what what trips and how does that all work yeah so not every trip they need to have somebody on board for. Um, they they pay for us to go on the trip and help coach. Um, not that much. So for me, if I go and do one trip, basically the amount of money I spend on airfare to get to the boat is essentially what I make being on board for 10 days. So it all comes out as a wash. Okay. So I'm okay. happy to go out there and enjoy the experience. Um, so certainly when some people, I know like Rio, he'll go out there and he might stay on board for two months straight. Um, so then obviously he's got priority because he's, he can kind of be on for a long period of time. Right. But I have a hard time getting away for two months. Yeah. So he goes out there a lot. So he sort of gets a priority. And, um, yeah, I think usually they just kind of send out an email and they say, Hey, we've got, we need, these are the dates for the trips we need coaches for who can do what. If you can do multiples in a row, that's, that, that's the best case scenario. Well, I think for so, you and, and the rep side of the business, I think it probably hurts you in terms of like your longevity on the boat and being able to stay out there for two months is probably probably a little difficult if you're still trying to manage accounts along the whole East Coast. 
Yeah, no, it's definitely. <laughs> Especially around the yeah. opposite side of the world, you know, completely different time zone and everything else. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about the kite industry. So, where, um, I mean, from your perspective, where, where, where do you where do you see kite? How's the growth of cutting doing these days? I think so. It definitely spiked right in like two thousand five, two thousand six, when technology all of a sudden made it from what was essentially a fairly dangerous sport to very safe sport so all of a sudden it's like all these people that wanted to get into it but either didn't have the ability or the skill or they just didn't want to take the risk they got into it in 2006 to maybe 2008 ish um it's a huge spike then and i think that's when the sport really got a lot of its popularity and then from probably then it's you know that kind of rise kind of tapered off a little bit and i think now we're just on that really slow steady growth um where the sport is still evolving. It is getting better, but it's not spiking like it used to. Right. It's uh. Right, but there, but still, you still see growth in terms of number of kiters each year, but it's more sustainable growth, right? It's just kind of yeah. growth is there, yeah. but like the long haul, yeah. It's it's hard to gauge how much the growth is, or, or like even how many kiteboarders are in the world. I've heard numbers everywhere from like. 350,000, I think was the estimate, like in 2008. And so now it's probably like maybe 700,000 would be my closest guess, but that's pretty random guess. Um, so yeah, it's definitely, yeah. And then you break that down geographically in terms of, right, different parts of the world where. There's definitely, yeah. there's definitely lots for sure. Especially, I mean, if you go to Europe, I think. Kiteboarding is much more mainstream in Europe than it is in the U.S. It's definitely a different market. Um, like I go to Tarifa, Spain. Uh, when I went there for the first time, I was just blown away by the amount of kites that would be on the water. I mean, thousands and thousands. You just look down the beach and you see kites everywhere. It's unbelievable. And um, I was told that there was 56 kite schools in the city limits of Tarifa. And Tarifa isn't the isn't a huge city or a huge area, but I think it's just such a destination for all of Europe and Spain and that area that it's just a huge, it's kind of like the Hatteras, maybe the Maui or Hood River of, you know, North America, or maybe all three of those combined and doubled at the same time. Wow. It's it's insane. And obviously windy, right? Obviously predominantly windy. Yeah. Consistently windy. But at the same time, it's not great riding conditions. It's, it's choppy, it's gusty, but, it's, but it is consistent for sure. So I think you can go there for a week and say, all right, we're going for seven days. I'm going to kite for seven days. And I think that's, I think that has a lot of value, a lot of value to it. And then how, how about demographics? Like what, what do you see in terms of age groups where kiting is really popular? I think that's the biggest difference probably between the U.S. and Europe. And I'm sad to say that in the U.S. I see the demographic as being a much older demographic because I think the unfortunate thing about the sport is it takes a fair bit of money um, and certainly time to get committed to it and get into it. Um, so in the U.S. I'd say the average person that's learning is probably, you know, they're, they're established, they're working or maybe even retired professionals. So they're in their 40s um, and they're well off and they've, have everything and you know sorted out. Where in Europe, I think you've got a much younger demographic, which I think is helping the sport a lot there. And maybe that's why I see a lot of the better riders in the world coming out of Europe. And um, there, Europe's windier in general. Um, I can tell you, like Cabrina, their most popular se- selling kite in the U.S. is a 12 meter. In Europe, it's a 10 meter. 
Huh. So just from those numbers, you can say, okay, either Europe's windier or at least people are kiting or, or riding smaller kites in Europe, or maybe people are skinnier in Europe. Yeah, sure. I think they're just, yeah, yeah. people are just a little smaller. Yeah. If there's the fat American for you, like, yeah, no, for sure. working, working against the trend. Yeah. I mean, so I mean, if there's anything I'd like to see in the sport, especially in the U S it would be seeing the younger generation get into it. You know, seeing this sport somehow seed its way into the high schools or into the teenage groups. I think that's what you really need to have something take off is, get to the younger generation, that's where you're going to see the you know, skill level really go up. You're, that's where you're going to see the sport progress. Um, well, so, like, so how old are you right now? 27. So, how, so I'm getting old. I'm old. <laughs> you're, not, you're not old, buddy. And um, so, so you grew up in the Outer Banks. How many kids in your high school were kiting when you were in high school? So that's the bummer. Uh, take take a guess. So my graduating class was about 350 people, yeah. and for context, Outer Banks is probably the most popular kite for spot for kiteboarding on the East Coast. I'm, I'm sure you would agree. Right. With that. Absolutely. Let's let's hear you. Let's hear your guess. <laughs> I think. I, well, I sort of yeah. I think I know the answer already. I mean, it's a small stag. Yeah. It's a shockingly small number, right? So yeah, yeah. You framed yeah. it perfectly. This is probably the windiest place on the East Coast. I think, and your, you know, your dad is basically a guy who was who w moved down there because he he loves the wind. So you've got that added sort of push and drive of your parents being wind sport people yeah. as well. And um, I, I I think it's a small number. I think it's like less than 10, 10 people in your high school, right? Oh yeah, no. So I was the only one. It was me. And then <laughs> um, I, my sister, my sister kind of as well, but she never really. She windsurfed a lot, but when she kind of got a little bit older, she never, she learned to kite, but I wouldn't say she kited. She could barely stay up when she went maybe once, once a year. Um, so count my sister or not, I would say she potentially doesn't count. And then my sophomore year, I taught my best friend, um, who actually ended up living with us when his parents moved to Florida and he didn't want to move to Florida. I taught him how to kite. Um, so there was really two of us. It was me and then my best friend who was essentially my brother living with us. That I taught how to kite, and uh, who was that? that? that was, uh, my buddy, his name was Catch, and um, yeah, yeah, we grew up together, and he was good. He kited a lot, and he, he loved it. But I think it's just a matter of access, to be honest. For most people, it's you know, if you didn't grow up in a windsport family, right? It was hard to get in. I mean, lessons are expensive. You have to spend a hundred bucks an hour on the lessons to to get going. Wow. Um, there's an upfront investment on the gear. And then, of course, it's time. And, you know, on the Outer Banks, you've got less of an excuse because you're in essentially the perfect spot to kite. Yeah. But for a lot of other, you know, areas on the East Coast, it's kind of understandable, right? Like, there's yeah. not – it's not a great area to do it. You need to live near the water to do yeah. it. So that includes a massive amount of the U.S. population. Um, it needs to be windy. Yeah. And it needs to be some sort of beach where there's actually space that you can – do it, you know. You know, even a lot of beaches in New Jersey, there's so many people on the beach and so much regulation. You might, you know, you don't want to endanger other people, and, right. uh, and you don't. Well, and so, typically, you know, you know, warmer months for us are not the windiest months. Right, and that's. I think that's. I mean, that's the hard part about the sport, right? It's just you have to live in the right area. All the stars have to align for you to get into the sport. And um, if, if there's anything holding back the sport, it's it's that for sure. Because 
you get anybody out riding and they're stoked and they are addicted, but you can't believe. But um, getting getting to that point's a little bit challenging, I think. Yeah, I'd say so. Yeah. But um, but yeah. So whatever. Myself and my good friend were the only kids in my high school that kited. The good news is there's a second high school on the Outer Banks in Hatteras Island, and that one is in Buxton, about an hour and a half south of where I live. And in that school, there's four kids that kited. So big numbers now. Um, <laughs> we're doubling. Well, and, it's really uh, growing. I mean, there's some big schools down there too, and I think the guys at Real have done an amazing job of promoting the sport down in the Outer Banks, and as well as like a lot of other schools down there. And for sure, it's, it's good so to now, see. Yeah, I mean, now you you still so you've got you know you've got Real, you've got Ocean Air, you've got Barton Shop, you've got Kitty yeah. Hawk Kite, um, you've got tons and tons of smaller schools as well on the Outer Banks teaching. But at the same time, it's the local population here still hasn't really, especially in the younger kids, still hasn't really gotten into it. You have to go into high school now. I don't really know any younger local kids that kite still to this day. It's almost like my generation and um, the other four kids that went to school in Hatteras, Ryder and um, his sister Vela, their dad owns Hatteras Island Sale Shop. So that's right. kind of their way to get linked in. Yeah. And then Brock and Morgan went across the street from Ryder and uh, Ryder and Bela. Wow! So that was their own little group, right? And they were the only four down there that kited. Hey, Evan. Yeah, it's kind of like our, our young generation got out of school, and sad to say, I'm not seeing another young generation kind of behind us taking our place. With those numbers in high school, Evan, were were more kids, but were kids windsurfing? I mean, or was that really low too down there? So, yeah, no, I mean, nobody was windsurfing. Zero kids were windsurfing um, in high school or elementary or middle school. Surfing, I mean, you certainly had a lot of kids surfing and a lot of kids skateboarding. I mean, I would say out of the boys in school, close to 50% of them surfed or skimboarded or bodyboarded. They did something in the water, um, but just not, there wasn't that same interest in the wind sports. What's happening in like the professional arena, like in terms of <clears throat> rankings? Is there is there an equivalency of sort of the World Championship Tour in surfing where you've got sort of pro kiteboarders that are all ranked, and at the end of the year, there's sort of like a you know the the world champion kite surfer, or how like what's going on in terms of in terms of uh, a professional league and events and tournaments and rankings and that kind of thing? There, there's a few world tours. They've gone through some turmoil in the last few years, just in terms of being renamed and different owners and different sponsors. And I think for that reason, it's been a little bit jumbled up and not super clear what's going on. But right now there's, um, there's a freestyle world tour that has a you know full multi-stop tour and they determine a world champion at the end of the year. How many, um, and how many stops is in the freestyle tour? It, it varies, and a lot of the stops aren't actually confirmed until last minute, you know, just a few weeks before the event, but usually between four and seven stops per year, kind of depending on the year. Okay. Um, and the majority of the stops are in Europe for both tours. So then there's a second tour. There's the GKA, which is the uh, the wave tour, and it's not it's not really a wave tour. It's kind of surfboard tour, like strapless freestyle combined with waves. And so they've got a couple wave stops this year. They did a wave stop in Morocco and one in 
Mauritius and they did a strapless freestyle kind of airs tour stop in um, Spain, Germany, Fort Aventura. That's that's it. Are, um, you, are you competing in any of those? I did. So I did a few of those stops last year on the strapless tour. Uh, right. I did the, the Morocco stop and the, the stop in three from Spain. But um, so th- those are the two main world tours right there. And again, for the U.S. market, the bummer is, like I just listed for the GK, all those stops are Europe yeah. and Africa. Yeah. There's none on this, this side of the world. Even in Maui? And, they don't have anything going on in Maui? They, so there's some other contests, right, that go on. Like Real has the Triple S, which is huge, right. and that's part right. of APL, which it's more of like a tour that the riders are putting together, which is the Kite Park League which is, you know, hitting kickers and sliders and all of that. And they've got a few different stops. They've got the Triple S in Hatteras. They do one in the Philippines. They do a stop on Hood River. Um, they're in England right now um, doing a stop. And there's a stop in Russia as well. I don't think I'm missing any. Um, and so that, that incorporates the U.S. a little bit more. But, um, yeah, no, it's – the, the world tour scene certainly is not super straightforward and super organized. You've got three different tours for three different disciplines of the sport. Um, you know, I think maybe, yeah, I think that's kind of where kiting gets a little bit. Uh, it's both one of the pros about the sport and maybe it hurts the sport as well is that there's so many different applications for it. You know, right. Kite on a surfboard, you can do freestyle, you can jump super huge, you can ride waves, you can, race there's so many applications it's awesome because if you kite you never get bored no matter where you are you, you can do something with it which is really well like about the sport i've kind of i was you know, i do a lot of freestyle stuff for a while i hit rails for a while and now i'm riding a surfboard more because it's a little easier on your body and i'm liking that side of it and you know the kiteboards can go into the olympics and the olympics is taking the kind of the race um side of the sport and so there's so many different applications it makes it really versatile and it's great but at the same time i think it kind of confuses things just from like a very direct straight forward, you know, world tour standpoint, but yeah. Um, and, I, and I don't even know if it's necessary, you know I mean? But there's, there's obviously like other sports that have all been like very competition focused. And it seems like in the kite world, it's, it's a lot less so, but like the, you know, obviously with windsurfing, there's all kinds of world championships, almost like too many. It's, it's ridiculous to see some of the, see how many world championships, some of these, you know, legacy, legendary windsurfers hold, you know, and then yeah. you look in the, and then in, in surfing, obviously, I think they've done an amazing job with a, with the world tour and, and the way that they, they crown a champion every single year. And there's, you know, there's a lot of, there's a, there's a lot of following. There's a lot like this fantasy, even like the, the whole fantasy world of the surf league is incredibly popular and. Yeah. They've just, they've done a nice job organizing it and it just really kind of popularized professional surfing in a way that I don't think a lot of people really foresaw. And so it's, it's obviously worked, I think, really well there. And in the kite world, it just, it, maybe it's not even necessary. You know, maybe the kite world surviving just fine without necessarily following that path. But, um, just kind of interesting to see sort of understand maybe the reasons why they haven't kind of taken that direction or whether they feel like they even need to. Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, I don't think, yeah, having the world tour, I don't think is that important to the sport in a lot of ways, because if you talk to your average 
Kiter on the beach, I guarantee you they can't tell you who the world champion is or was. Right. They probably can't even. They probably can't even name the world tour. They, they don't know what stops going. They don't follow it whatsoever. And I think that's what's kind of nice about the sport is that you don't need that to enjoy the sport. You don't need. You know, I guess a lot of the riders in the sport care about it a lot because that's kind of what pays the bills. And if you want to be a professional athlete, you need some way to legitimize yourself and your skills or whatever. But from the standpoint of the sport is anybody can have so much fun with it. Who needs a world tour? You know, all, all you want to do is just go out and boost and jump and, you know, have exactly. a good time. And I think not taking it seriously is probably the, is the best thing that anybody can do for almost any sport. Yeah, I mean, it's working now, that's for sure. No sense in making any changes at this point. Yeah, no, for sure. And I think, again, I think maybe it's a different market thing. Like, the Europeans certainly care more about the world tour. And if you ask, you know, the 20-year-old kiter on the beach, yeah. you can probably name more statistics than I can about who's leading and this and that that's going on. And, um, yeah, I think that's just a different – maybe it's a cultural thing. Maybe it's yeah. just a different market. But uh, I think it's nice just to go out and enjoy the sport for what it's worth and – not have to make sure you're doing, you know, so many people are, you know, no matter what the sport is, make sure it's, you know, it's legitimate and, you know, this trick is this and that and the other and just, well, you know, it doesn't matter. Just go out and have fun and get your exercise and, you know, enjoy yourself. That's what it's, what it's all about. And that's what you're doing. Thanks, Evan. And thanks for like, yeah. All, yeah, thanks for all your support. I mean, you're a great ambassador for this sport and I, and I really truly mean that. And, and again, I think that it's incredible what you're doing in terms of running the business side and also being an athlete at the same time and the legitimacy of seeing you, watching you ride and then talking to you about kite orders and kite technology and kite evolution. It's just, it's incredible. So you've done, I think you've done an amazing job and I think the sport is lucky to have someone like you in the position that you're in. So thanks, yeah, for, everything, thanks for everything you're doing. Well, I, I enjoy it. I'm glad I'm not doing anything else, to be honest. And I don't know. When you're so tied up in it, you love doing something. It's pretty easy to. That's the goal. That's the goal, right? You got to love what you do. Yep. No, for sure. I'm definitely I. Super lucky. To, you know, whatever. Do what I'm doing right now. So. And then, uh, and then to have you take me to Puerto Rico and going on adventures together. Can't um, wait, buddy. Hopefully, Puerto Rico is going to be there when we're when our trip's ready in February, but. We'll, have, uh, have, have you had any further contacts? Yeah, um, yeah, day to day. You know, we're we're like definitely staying in touch day to day with with what's happening. And um, so I, t I talked to our crew yesterday, and I just said at this point I'm exercising patience. You know, I'm just waiting for the right time because you know there's there's a lot of interest in running down there and trying to help out and and trying to help kind of with all the kind of problems we're having with whether it be power or water or food or um just communications and i, I think there's there's a lot of pent-up demand and with people stateside who really who want to get down there and start helping but i think that we're still waiting for them to reach a point of sustainability where adding more people doesn't create more of a problem which is kind of where they are now you know they there's so there's such desperation just for clean drinking water right now that anybody else who goes down there just puts pressure on the drinking water supply. So yeah. right now we're just exercising patience and waiting for sort of waiting for um, things to shift where all of a sudden they're ready to start seeing volunteers. 
come down and starting to help. But in the interim, I mean, you know, I guess the president is there today and, you know, hopefully we see some action in terms of some, some major relief. And because without the, without communications, honestly, there's just, there's a rumor mill of, of, of kind of what the status looks like down there. And you just don't know, you don't know what's, it's really hard to get a really firm grasp of what's actually going on down there. And then, then you got the different regions of the island. So you've got like, here's what's happening in San Juan. Here's what's happening, um, you know, in Rincon where we are. And, and then, and with the spotty communications, we, we hear from people, you know, if they get, if they find a hot spot or hot spots are like opening up in different kind of community centers around the island and people are flooding those areas, but then, but then they bog down the communications because everybody's going to one spot to try to get some kind of outbound signal to send like a few um, instant messages or DMs or whatever, and just trying to get out some messaging to some people. And so on our side, we're just kind of, everyone's kind of just, you know, collecting what they're hearing and sharing it with everybody else who's interested in finding out what's going on with PR. But anyway, that's, that's a long way of saying that um, I, I think the general consensus I've been hearing is that, you know, they're going to be pretty, pretty crippled through um, probably the Christmas holiday season. And then after that, they feel like they're going to be on their feet and hoping to kind of salvage the second half of the winter season. So I think we should be in good shape, bud, for our trip. But um, obviously, we'll be we'll be talking plenty of times before then. Yeah, that's crazy. I mean, so at this point, they really just need supplies more than people. Yeah, they need they need water. They need water and they need some communication. I mean, um, yeah, that's they yeah they're still on sort of like we need our critical life support systems right now. But I have heard of, I've heard some amazing stories about just the community. So I've heard mostly the stuff of this going on in Rincon on the west side, but I've heard about community stuff where everyone's pulling together and feeding, you know, feeding everybody in the community. So restaurants are opening up and just turning into like food shelters, essentially. And um, I mean, the one consistent thing I've heard is that every single wooden home is pretty much gone. So the homelessness factor has got to be unbelievable at this point. So I don't even know. I think there's a lot of shelters or families or just, you know, just bringing in family members or friends or whatever and just trying to help, you know, house everybody or just provide shelter and basic necessities to everyone. And so um, that's kind of, you know, that's so that I mean, that, that's the one consistent thing that I've heard so far. So we'll see. We'll see. But I know there's a lot of humanitarian um, interest uh, in groups going down and really trying to help kind of get things going again once once the island's ready to receive more people. Right. Yeah, that's pretty pretty horrible. There's a lot of wooden houses in Puerto Rico too. Yeah. I can't cannot imagine the amount. I mean, do you know how hard they were hit kind of like inland, like in the mountain area? Yeah, I think yeah, they were they were hit really hard. And I mean, somebody tried to explain to me that, you know, like the Virgin Islands were hit really hard as well. Um, those those populations are obviously significantly smaller than Puerto Rico. So from what I heard, like evacuation from those islands was a little more plausible and possible. Whereas, you know, Puerto Rico's got more than 3 million people that live there. So evacuation is just not an option. And, um, you know, Maria just hit him dead center. So... Everything, no matter 
yeah. on the island. The wind damage was still there for sure. Oh yeah, yeah, and, and just you know, all all communication towers were basically just leveled. But I guess Claro slowly kind of piecing them some piecing some stuff back together, slowly getting some things back online. And um, so we're yeah, so we're just getting sporadic news here and there, and just you know, exercising patience, just waiting till our time where we can get down there. And in the meantime, um, you know, we've started a GoFundMe page. Um, through the shop, helping to raise some money so that once we can get down there, we can help, you know, start to rebuild the sort of necessary building blocks for getting the tourism economy back up and running. Because ultimately, and I've heard this from a lot of people, like the best way you can help the Caribbean is don't cancel your travel plan for the winter. You know, I mean, they're going to be, they're going to need to get tourists back down there. And that's, that's obviously what drives the economy. So they're going to really need to see some heavy traffic from people stateside in Europe or, you know, whoever, wherever they may come from, but they're going to need, definitely need to see some tourist activity to help get some dollars flowing through there. Cause and you can imagine, I mean, it's just, you know, the, the income stream right now is basically on pause. I mean, nobody's able to make, I mean, nothing's open. Nobody's down there. I mean, people are just in yeah. survival mode. So it's, uh, it's tough. Yeah. But thanks for asking. And, um, I'll certainly keep you posted. And, uh, and then once we're ready, man, we'll start plugging our trip again. But, um, I'm looking forward to doing it again. We had a blast last year. It's so fun to have you down there and, and, uh, looking forward to it again this year. Yeah. No, keep me posted on that. We should definitely keep that on the radar. But yeah, wait, wait for them to get, you know, get, get everything cleaned up a little more and make sure we're not premature in terms of just intruding on, People needing to Absolutely. get their lives back in order before we come down there and have a good time. But um, it was it was interesting. Like yesterday, I saw an article in Barbados, right? Not affected by the storms whatsoever. Much lower in the Caribbean, clean and clear. And their tourism numbers are way down, and they're freaking out because they've had a ton of canceled trips just due wow. to basic confusion. <laughs> and everybody kind of thinking that Barbados is maybe somewhere else in the Caribbean, or thinking the entire <laughs> Caribbean got slammed by the storms. So they've had these drastic numbers, and they're really worried about their tourism season this year, even though they're one of the islands that was spared just because the average person geography isn't that good. Oh, my God. That's terrible. Yeah. I was reading it, and I felt horrible, and I was kind of laughing at the same time. But Right. Right. Pretty just, oh, my God. Fun. As connected as everybody is, you know, to technology, the fact that they don't know – their geography well enough to realize that Barbados is, I mean, it's kind of, it's kind of hysterical. It's kind of pretty funny. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm yeah. you know, you're almost like maybe they're, you know, maybe their season spike, right? And everybody that you go to the Caribbean and has something, you know, booked to, you know, Puerto Rico or to the BVIs or, you know, St. Martin or whatever. Maybe they say, okay, you know, we can't go to St. Martin this year because they're totally smoked. Let's, let's try somewhere new. Let's go to Barbados. Yeah, or maybe, or maybe Bar Kevin made a good point. Maybe Barbados is just, unfortunately, oh, yeah. they're, they're, yeah, <laughs> just being confused with, uh, Barbuda, you know, just like that's, too similar. Yeah, that's very possible for sure. Yeah. All right, my friend. Well, thank you so much for doing this, Evan. I'm going to let you go so you can get back to your day to day activities, but this has been a pleasure having you. Um, always appreciate your insight into, uh, what's going on in the kite world and just always a pleasure chatting with you. No, thanks, thanks for having me on, um, Russ. I appreciate it. You got it, pal. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, I'll talk, I'll talk to you guys later. Talk to you soon. 
All right. Take care, Evan. Thank you, pal. Uh, All right. Bye. See ya.